Hi, welcome to the Food in the Age podcast, and I'm your host, JP McMahon. Thank you for listening to the Food in the Edge podcast. If you're enjoying our podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts as it will help us connect with more people like you. We release our podcast fortnightly, usually at the beginning of the month and midway through the month. Our podcast focuses on food and its importance in our society. Each fortnight, we talk to different speakers from around the globe on different food issues that are affecting them. If you're interested in these issues, please subscribe and tell your friends. If you have any comments on the subject of the podcast we were discussing today, please share your ideas with us. You can do so on Twitter and it's at Food on the Edge or on Instagram, which is the same. Or you can also leave a comment on Facebook. Our hashtags are Join the Conversation and FOTE2021. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the different food issues that we're discussing each fortnight. Is there a particular issue you want us to talk about? Just get in touch. So let's continue the conversation on Twitter and you can find us at Food on the Edge. If you'd like to be in with a chance to win a copy of my cookbook, The Irish Cookbook, share a screenshot of this podcast on your Instagram stories and tag at Food on the Edge. Hi, everyone. You're very welcome to the Food in the Edge podcast. Today, I am talking to Owen O'Brien, uh, who is our first politician that we're talking to. And this is part of, uh, I suppose, our agenda to try and spread food into areas that it it traditionally isn't considered, even though the politics of food is a, is a, is a massive area. But sometimes when we subdivide everything in um, in our world, food gets its own uh, special place. So, uh, Owen, you're really welcome to the to the podcast. Great, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. And wonderful. And I know the, this came about from you uh, cooking a few recipes from uh, from my cookbook. So I said, oh, wow, there's someone who, who uh, who's interested in food. And uh, I always think that, uh, as I said, food sometimes gets separated from almost everything. And even we were talking there before we went on about food as an art form or food as a cultural or social experience. I think sometimes in Ireland, we've often reduced food to, I suppose, to, to nutrition or to eating and possibly that's the famine and possibly it's colonization and there's many many other reasons but um uh, for me food is a it, i suppose affects everyone and um i suppose it's a very important part of of our lives yeah sure and and i'm somebody who who i suppose came to thinking about food and valuing not just food but the, the business of cooking and and cooking for friends probably a little bit later in life than than others uh, which again is a, a reflection of of our own kind of culture around food um, but, but for me I suppose it's it, it's something I, I love to do to relax I, I really like that idea of bringing people who are important to you together uh, and I suppose demonstrating to them their importance to you by putting a, a significant effort into into making a big meal uh, and also I suppose like we're, we're really blessed in this country as most countries are but 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 I think it's important that we tell ourselves this we have wonderful food we have wonderful produce of our shores uh, and our land. And we have a culinary uh, tradition, um, which unfortunately uh, uh, has been for far too long lost. So I think one of the reasons why I've been promoting your book on on, on Twitter a lot is because it's really important. Uh, not that our culinary tradition is more important than anybody else's, but what makes the world a wonderful place and regions 
uh, uh, wonderful places to visit is those differences, those distinctions, a lot of which have to do with the local sea, the local land, the local traditions. So I, I think anybody who's in the business of promoting that gets my vote uh, any day. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's probably one of the reasons why like we set up Food in the Edge in the first place because I was always traveling to other countries and they were telling me how good their food was. And I, this was back in 2014 and I kept thinking, God, there's no reason why people can't come to Ireland and say, wow, we have great food. And I think it is, uh, I suppose, because our culinary tradition was slightly lost, but I don't think our tradition of producing food has ever been lost. And uh, I know firsthand from chefs visiting from all over the world when they talk about the fish or, or our ducks or our vegetables or I, and the list is endless and and it is it does take a long time to I suppose uh, resurrect that um, because you, you bring over people they experience the food they go home they tell people about it. it it's not it's not as simple I suppose as as uh, as putting up a post on, on social media we're, we're used to stuff going very very fast these days but I, I think that the the creation of a of a of a, um, a food culture uh, or the resurrection of a food culture takes takes a little bit of time um but i, I suppose uh, you've, you've talked about i suppose how food is for you now and i think the the issue of community for me is so important when it comes to food and and that's what attracted me to tapas and to spain and opening up our spanish restaurant because it was people sitting around eating um but uh, what what are your i always start off with this question because i think it's a really important question um when, when we do the, po the podcast um because for most of the time, we don't really get to think about food and memory in our daily lives. We're kind of busy and we're eating. But what are some of your uh, first food memories? And I suppose, how do they still influence the way you think about food? I suppose like 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 a lot of people of my uh, generation, I, I grew up in middle class suburbia in Dublin. Uh, and my mother, when she was alive, was, was a really great woman um, and and uh, somebody who always looked after us really well. But But food wasn't something important to us in the sense that we always had kind of good quality food, but pretty basic food. Uh, and I'd say the, the, the repertoire of meals that my mom cooked was, was pretty standard. One of the dishes she used to do, because she, she was from Tipperary in the country, but my father was kind of working class Dublin. Um, so she used to kind of do, she never called it coddle. It, it would probably, that would have been a bit too common for her, but it was essentially a kind of a, a sausage hot pot, she called it, but a coddle, which we used to love as kids. And beyond that, then, particularly into the 80s, you know, the microwave was the fashion and processed food. And it's like we were a big fans of things like Finder's Crispy Pancakes when they came out. And that, that has come up for me so much. And that, we literally, that was one of the one of our the highlights of our meals sometimes i grew up in in minute but definitely Finder's crispy pancakes were there even i even think someone is trying to bring them back for nostalgic purposes um, well the the, the interesting thing about those however is is i have a, a wonderful tessa kiros cookbook from portugal uh piri piri starfish which is one of my favorite cookbooks yeah. And of course, she has this beautiful recipe, uh, which is for um, uh, shrimp um, empanadas, and they are crispy Finder's pancakes, right? So it's, it's obviously a, a Portuguese yeah. recipe of type, right? Um, so so I've endeavoured to make those from a few that, times. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so, I mean... They're not a one then, sorry. So, so some other kind of key memories, like I, I remember really well the first meal I cooked for friends, which was an absolute disaster. I have no idea what got into my head, but I would have been near the end of school, so maybe fifth year, uh, and pulled out some of my mother's cookbook. So that the, 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 the menu was peanut soup, which tasted like liquid oh. peanut butter, uh, which was pretty <laughs> appalling. 
macaroni cheese, which was literally like a solid block of poorly cooked uh, 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 pasta and tasteless cheese. Uh, and then I did a peanut ice cream. Um, why I wanted peanut ice cream and peanut soup to start, I don't know, but that was probably the only thing that was marginally properly cooked. Uh, and my friends uh, made me promise I would never cook for them again. So I got off did to an inauspicious start. Hmm? Did you do a dessert? Yeah, I homemade the ice cream, peanut ice cream. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's, um, like, that's not, a, I mean, it definitely an A, an a for effort. I mean, uh, uh, but, when you're, when you're, but, but, when you're but, but, making but an F, an F for outcome. Let me tell you, um, we we all we all went and had McDonald's afterwards. I remember. I know, and like it doesn't sound too dissimilar to, I suppose, uh, my growing up as well, uh, and and in terms of the the repertoire of dishes, and and really for me it wasn't um, until I was fifteen or sixteen as well, until I I suppose started in, engaging with food. I mean, for me, it's always uh, and it, it could be they could be badly aligned, but uh, Italian ninety was a big thing for us at home and Italian food. And it was actually, when I was writing the cookbook, it was interesting to see how much Italian food was in Ireland in the 50s and around the turn of the century. And whatever happened in the 60s, 70s and 80s, that, that, was, somehow, that was somehow lost. But when, uh, when was, it, was it your later teens or early 20s when, I suppose, when you became interested in, in food as something more than just, I suppose, uh, nutrition or, or, or just, or, or just uh, eating when you were hungry? No, in fact, it was a bit later than that. So I, I left home when I was 18 and moved to London uh, and started working, went back to school and went to college. And, and my diet was absolutely terrible. Like I just, I, I ate literally to fill a gap. Um, although interestingly, from from my late teens to my late twenties, I worked in restaurants. So almost all of the oh, wow. work I would have in, worked in London or Belfast. So in in Dublin, in London, and Belfast. Now they were generally cafes, and I was never a, a, anywhere near the the chef. I would have been a kitchen porter or or a commie chef or, or front of house. But literally for about a decade, I would have worked with or close to food. Um, and while it never sparked an interest at that point in cooking. I always look back uh, when I did start getting interested in cooking and realize that actually the one thing I learned in, in those 10 years is it kind of took the mystery away from us. That it's, you know, because I was in and around food and people who knew what to do with, with ingredients, it was never, a, 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 for me, it was never a, kind of a, a fear to start cooking, right? Mm. So probably what started me was um, in, in, in the late 90s, I moved from Be Dublin, or sorry, I moved from London to Dublin and then to Belfast when I started working full-time for Sinn Féin. And one of the jobs I had was to try and build a youth movement for the party, Sinn Féin Youth. And at the time, we were kind of looking around the world at different places where there were, you know, similar political struggles that had similar um, um, youth movements. And and I came across one in the Basque Country. Uh, um, uh, and I went on to develop a, a particular interest in that part of the world, which I still have a great affection for. So, of course, we used to go there uh, and we'd organised delegations of young people from the north and from the south of Ireland and from the Basque Country. And one of the things that struck me when I went there, of course, was how important food was for everybody, right? Food was something uh, that was given a really important place. First of all, there was the, the whole business of everybody has lunch um, and, and there's a communal element to lunch and, and what you do. And it's not just about the food, it's about the, the exchange and, and, and the conversation. The second thing is they have a wonderful culinary tradition um, and they're very proud of it and, and they want to showcase it. But for me, the other thing that was interesting is food wasn't um, it, it wasn't 
something that wealthy people did. It wasn't something you did as a special occasion. Yes, there were restaurants that you went to for those occasions. But for the first time, I came to a place whereby really good quality food was something for everybody. And in fact, over a number of years, I would have in, in other jobs for the party um, uh, been in other European countries like Portugal and Spain and whatever, uh, and realize in all of these countries, the, the idea of popular food and popular food cultures is really, really strong. Um, and therefore, the association that I would have grown up with, that good quality cuisine is something that only people with money could afford to do and generally would do when they would go out for a special occasion was completely, completely challenged. And over a period of time, I just I got really attracted to that idea that what a nice way to spend time with people and what a nice way to, to do things. So from there, I would have had a lot of Basque friends in Belfast. I would have had a, a Basque partner at the time. Her father was an exceptionally good cook. Um, and then I just started cooking. Um, and a lot of the things that I would have cooked were the stuff that I was eating when I was away or the stuff that we would have eaten at home in Belfast. And was that, um, in, your, was that in your like mid-20s or, or mid or Later 20s. Kind of 27, 28, 29, 30. So it's around that point. And yeah. really before that, um, if you had seen my diet, like boxes of toffee pops and cans of cherry Coke, but I just, I took to this food culture. And then the more I realized um, uh, that, you know, as I traveled around Europe, that this wasn't something unique to one little part of the Spanish state. It was something really, really common. You know, I, I have this wonderful memory of being at a Portuguese Communist Party festival for their, their newspaper Avanti. It's this huge festival every year. Now it's a little bit kind of, communist kind of retro nostalgia these days but mm. but one of the things they would do for the delegates is you would go into this big factory um and you'd have a huge popular meal uh, with uh, with the workers the Basque country they have this wonderful tradition the Sagardo Tegias uh, which I don't know if, you, if you've ever been to one but this was you know they make cider really really good yes. quality cider so in in the in the orchards uh, there would be this custom whereby when the, the merchants would be coming to taste the cider to see if they'd ordered or not, you'd get a bit of a meal. So you'd have, you know, some beautiful salt cod omelette. You'd have a really, really nice kind of chuleta steak. Uh, and then you'd have some nice uh, uh, Basque uh, uh, sheep's cheese and membrillo or whatever. So that's now a popular meal. Uh, and at that time of the year, big gangs of people, 20, 30, 40 friends or family, they go, you pay your tw 10 or 20 euros you stand in a big barn and you have one of these traditional cider meals. And of course, after every course, the shout goes out and uh, the big vat of cider is open and everybody gets their glass. So that idea of using food as a way of having big communal celebrations is one I just, I really got attracted to. And, and that's, I think, what really sparked my interest in cooking. And then once you get hooked, you don't really stop. Yeah, no, and it's, it's interesting because I suppose for me, my formative like I, I mean, I mentioned Italian food, but for me, traveling to Spain in my twenties was definitely an eye opener in terms of, as you said, the way in which they, the way in which I suppose food was much more integrated in a, on an everyday level, and and even from breakfast to lunch um, and to and to dinner. And actually, the the Basque country for me actually was was a really interesting point because, like, when we look at the Basque country now, it, like it is an absolute emblem of of. Um, uh, of food internationally and and all and many people even people i know would take that for granted and they would just say oh they must have had it for a thousand years but i remember speaking to an american journalist who had lived there since the 70s and saying that due to 
Etta and the violence and all that. She said that there was nothing there. I mean, of course, there was food and people, but the way in which that we perceive the Basque now, and, and it is an international star when it comes to food. And I suppose that story inspired me to think about Ireland in that way, because, I mean, we can think about Ireland now and say, OK, we are, we, we are possibly not world leaders when it comes to um, the international perception of food, but we have all of the tools and the and I suppose the potential to uh, to to really um, to re to re to really um, uh, to really do that. But I, I love your story of uh, of the of the of the cider, um, and I always wonder why, like we can't have more. No, I wouldn't say more food festivals in Ireland because there's plenty of food festivals. But like the Spanish are great at food events, like they celebrate leeks or they celebrate cider or they celebrate. And and then for me, it was always like God, like we do have. I know the 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 potato and the and the farming festival, um, but it's still on the local on the level of community. I think that I think we could be doing so much more in terms of uh, our harvest or even cider. I mean, cider is very overlooked in Ireland and it is our wine. And um, I, I think that we could we could really um, we could really um, uh, look at that. Like in t- you've mentioned, like, I suppose, working with um, uh, the youth movement for, for Sinn Féin. And I suppose one of the big things for us is uh, is uh, is food education for children. And I think that it's still something I suppose we we bring up every year at, at Food in the Edge and that I, I suppose having studied home economics and I, I I don't know if that's the reason why I got into food. I, I had asthma and it was only woodworker home economics. They were the choices. <laughs> so I had to do home economics and I was one of three guys. And talking to home economics teachers recently, she said that the, the demographic is still the same. There's three guys and 27 girls. But um, I, I think that uh, having some sort of food subject at primary school or even if we had a, a mandatory one for the first three years in, in terms of junior cert, because many people leave school and they have no ability to cook. And for me, that lack of ability is a lack of, I suppose, food sovereignty, because then you're you are you have to go to fast food places. You have to eat ready meals. And I, I think that it is I, I suppose I think we could be doing a lot more for you, I suppose, as a like as a as, as a politician. I mean, what way do you think we could um, and as a writer as well, but what way you think we could make our, our food education better in, in Ireland for, for young people so that they, I suppose that they, that A, they understand the rich tradition we have, but also that they can actually cook for themselves. Yeah, so there's a few things. I mean, I mean, obviously the most basic one is is teaching the basic skills of cooking, um, and and that should be, in my view, mandatory. I mean, it's 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 one of the the most basic life skills, uh, and it always kind of perplexes me that you know we should teach people about food, we should teach people about money, we should teach people about the economy from as as soon as they can walk and talk. Um, um, and and I suppose one of the reasons why I came so late uh, to to enjoying cooking and enjoying food. Is because I didn't know how to do it. I mean, okay, I know I worked in restaurants, but I, you know, the basic kind of core skills is something I never learned. Having said that, lots of Irish people learn those skills, predominantly young young girls in school. Uh, so that in itself, I don't think takes you far enough. But you need to do that. Yeah. I, I do think there there's a separate thing which is about making good quality food cheaper. Um, uh, because it's all very well uh, uh, me sitting here as a TD saying you know people should should do this and should do that. Um, it is so cheap 
uh, to eat processed food. And so many families, in fact, the majority of families live on exceptionally tight budgets that if we're if we're serious about promoting, you know, what you call food sovereignty and, and, and a different kind of approach to food, then it has to be cheaper. Um, and look, I, I'm, I'm not in any way somebody who knows anything about the supply chains of food and the economics yeah. of it. It's it's not my area of expertise. But what I do know is, is when I go to the Basque country, and okay, there are slight differences in terms of the consumer price index, uh, but anywhere uh, in, in, in the Iberian Peninsula, I can go to a food market and buy exceptionally fresh, fresh produce, and it is really good value for money. Uh, and families of almost any income uh, can buy that food and cook that food and take great pride in it. So there's an economics to this as well, which I think is really key. But also things like festivals. Like, again, one of the lovely traditions I like in, in the Basque country is every town and and, and neighbourhood and every village has a fiesta. And the fiesta is usually named after its patron saint or whatever, right? Mm. Um, and, and one of the traditions they have there is because generally the fiestas are a drinking occasion, is that they have these popular meals in the morning. Right, so they they replicate old 18th and early 19th century farmers' breakfasts, which is basically a middle of the day dinner at nine o'clock in the morning, uh, and of course they have this wonderful institution over there called the Gastronomic Societies, which are usually above a restaurant um, or connected to a restaurant. They are big industrial kitchens. You join the Gastronomic Society, and then you can go there and cook for a large group of your friends. All of the the, the, the cooking implements and and condiments and all of that are there. You just have to bring the food, right? Of course, partly it's because they live in quite small apartments and, you know, if you want to cook for a large group, you have to have some facility. But there's a whole network of these all over the Basque country. Uh, so into the Gastronomic Society you go, a couple of your friends cook a huge meal, everybody has, has, has a big feed and then off they go out to the party and whatever. And of course, now what happens is in different localities, they, they celebrate at that popular meal and then during the, the the festival whatever the local produce is likewise they, they organize wonderful popular meals as fundraisers so the the, the basque language school movement the Acastola movement organize these huge popular food festivals uh, and you pay a certain price and then there's raffles and all the rest so uh, and what do they do well every year it moves around the country and there's meals specializing in the local cuisine so it's a way of promoting not just the language raising funds for the schools but also of promoting the, the the culture of of local food and regional recipes and and they're wonderful events because they're really great ways to kind of propagandize evangelize and and spread something that's really really wonderful um like i have this really good friend of mine he's a, a politician now and he's a human rights lawyer and when he was a human rights lawyer he used to spend a lot of time traveling around the world so he didn't get to go to the basque country much and one of the the provinces of the basque country nafaroa has this nafaroa day and it's each year it's in a different town or village and half the country travels to the town or village for the huge popular festivals and meals and there's sport and there's uh, food and all the rest and you kind of pay your money you go into these huge marquees big big long trestle tables and this isn't high cuisine this is good quality kind of you know country fair and this guy just was overcome with emotion he'd been away for so long and this was a way for him to reconnect with his family his friends his his place in the world so i do think you know a little bit of innovation around that and maybe one of our weaknesses has also been maybe one of our strengths, which is we produce great food, but it's for export. Right? I spend a bit of time in, in West Cork and Beira, where I do a lot of writing, and we go down to Castletown Bear, right? Almost everything that's caught there is exported. 
Um, like I remember coming across that the, the place where I stay, um, the, the the couple that own it, he's also a, an inshore shallow uh, fisherman. So he does these beautiful shallow water shrimp, and I think he's just got his license for for oysters, and he's always done mussels. But there's these beautiful little small red shrimp, but they're mature at that size, right? You wouldn't get them anywhere in Dublin. And they are yeah. just exquisite. And I remember because I'm a, I'm a big fan of of um, uh, Niall Sabongi's uh, 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 work up in in Dublin. Uh, and Claw Cafe was a really really great addition to the the restaurant scene here because again really good quality fresh seafood and shellfish, but at a really good price. And I went to him. And I said, you, "Like you got to get this stuff in Dublin. Like it's really great." Uh, and still, it hasn't happened. Why? Because it's all just exported to Japan and Spain. Um, so I do think. Our strength in terms of producing good quality produce to export. One of the consequences of that, of course, is it's not necessarily readily available here, or it's not accessible and affordable here. Uh, and I think until we change that, it's going to be an uphill battle, particularly for struggling families on limited incomes, uh, for whom this is all a nice conversation. But in between working two jobs and getting the kids to and from school and cleaning the house, you know, talking about a two or a three hour preparation to, to cook a big Sunday dinner or even spending 45 minutes to cook a dinner is a luxury that they just don't have. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think education, uh, particularly around the around the the idea of uh, or the sorry, the, the actuality of, of um, uh, food that's exported. I mean, I certainly know there's langoustines off the coast of Galway that never make it to Galway. They probably all, all end up in Madrid or Barcelona. And um, and there's, I suppose there's a certain sadness in that because often when they end up in Spain, they're they're not labelled. They're not, not even labelled as Irish shellfish, and then they, they just go into the mix. And so I think there's a double loss. There's a loss for us because we don't realise the amazing shellfish that we have, and then there's a loss uh, for the producer because they go into the mix in Spain, in Spain, and they're just they're just I suppose a commodity. And I think that 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 idea of food as a commodity does. Um, I suppose does uh, set up so many challenges for us when it comes to affordable good food because for me like food good food needs to be affordable and, and the fact that you can have a, a meal in in a fast food place cheaper than you can cook one is um is is a great difficulty and I, like i we we i suppose people i suppose people forget that like um, all chefs are um also not all chefs but many chefs have families and when i go home the way i cook at home is not the way i cook in the restaurant and so all of the the difficulties that that one experiences are the same difficulties that i experience of whether it's can i buy a organic chicken can i buy a free-range chicken am i going to go for the cheapest chicken like they are all very different considerations when one is a consumer as opposed to when one is running a restaurant for for guests and i do think that um, and I don't have the answer whether it's subsidies or whether it's um, uh, the. I suppose the, the 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 difficulty is when you have a um, uh, an industry such as such as the beef industry and you have it being subsidised at the level of farming and it being sold below cost in the supermarket and then yet making a hundred hundred million in the middle. That's for me. That's where the problem is. And I'm not saying that like this is right or wrong or that, but there is like there. The, the farmer can't be squeezed and the and the consumer can't be squeezed and then everyone for everyone to get the want so i do think there is a lot to there is a lot to unravel and that's not i don't i don't think that problem is unique to to ireland and if anything i think that 
the problems that we have in Ireland are certainly much more uh, exacerbated when you look at the US and in terms of commodity crops and farmers growing and making no money at all. So I think sometimes the potential that we have in Ireland is our size. And there's a certain amount of control that we can uh, we can do. And also, many of us still have a connection to the land, whereas that a lot of that is lost in mm. the US and the UK. But I, I do think there's there's lots of positive signs, right? So, for example, you know, as 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 we've been traveling around the country over the last couple of years, you're seeing an awful lot of real farmers markets, not the the, the, the gentrified yeah. ones that you see in some parts of Dublin, but just basically local farmers and 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 uh, people involved in various aspects of food production, just coming and in the local car park in Gory or you know uh, uh, down in 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 wherever, just on a Saturday or Sunday coming and selling the stuff, right? And of course that's one way to make it eminently more affordable because the farmer can get a better cut. I don't know it's probably just a bit of a side. Uh, uh, operation to their main commercial activity but you can do a little bit of that right and i really like that what i've also started to notice however is we are beginning to get an increase in really good quality mid-price restaurants right so you know again just i noticed from dublin when when i used to come to dublin during the celtic tiger era gladly i didn't live here for most of it what, what I noticed was there was a lot of really fancy looking restaurants that were very expensive and the food wasn't very good. Uh, and therefore, it wasn't something that interested me. After the crash, you started to get a lot of interesting uh, kind of pop-up restaurants of very various different kinds. You know, everything from kind of Crackbird and, and Skinflint, but to really lovely uh, uh, restaurants like Fish Shop, for example, which of course has now moved its principal restaurant and unfortunately moved down to Waterford just as COVID hit. But you know, where where younger people who were really interested in food, you know, were interested in getting into business, were starting to do interesting things. And again, uh, um, Claw Cafe and Nalsabongi is another good example of that. I also think during the lockdown, we've seen some really interesting things. And, you know, Niall, for example, from, from what I can see, pretty much kept all of his staff in employment and just shifted from one of the two restaurants to, mm. to picking up the fish directly from the trawlers and then in whatever way getting it to people. You know, so like I have an order arriving today of a, a pile of stuff from, from sustainable seafood for dinner I'm cooking tomorrow. And then they went to various markets. And I think more of that is what we need. But I think it's also really important that we popularize it. It can't be something for, you know, young creative professionals in the gentrified parts of Dublin or Galway or Cork. This has to be about giving everybody access to food that's really good quality, that's local, that's affordable. And if they choose it or not, that's fine, right? Like Mm. people are big enough to make up their own minds as to what they want to eat. So I think the more of that, the better. And the good thing about social media is it allows us to promote it. So, you know, when, when, when I started tweeting about food i did it kind of consciously because i wanted to promote the idea uh, and and i came in for a fair amount of flack from from some uh, media quarters who thought that uh, as a Sinn Féin representative i i don't know maybe i should just be wearing sackcloth and ashes and and drinking lukewarm water and eating dry bread whereas for me it, it's all part of the same thing uh, and it was interesting because i was in west cork and Beira working on the book about the housing crisis and the, 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 the guy, Kieran, the, the fisherman, who him and his partner own the place I, I rent when I go down there, 
you know, one of the, the deals is when you rent there, you can pick up the phone and say, Kieran, could you drop us around some some shellfish? And Kieran, one of the kids, goes out and catches it and brings it to you literally the hour or two it's caught, right? Of course, I was so excited. I had this big thing of shrimp and I had these beautiful oysters and a couple of kilos of mussels. Straight away tweeting about it just to say, like, this is exceptional. This is really good. This should be promoted. So, of course, the poor old Sunday Times didn't know what to do uh, uh, and appalled by this uh, um, display of, of uh, love for shellfish, decided to be quite critical of it. And, of course, that got into the newspapers. But for me, the really interesting thing was the response of people. People saying, not a Sinn Féin supporter, you know, wouldn't vote for this party, but surely it's a good thing somebody's promoting local produce or surely it's a good thing somebody's cooking themselves a meal or, you know. So the popular reaction was actually, you know, this is this is a smart thing. And then when the lockdown happened, I was like, okay, so we have to do everything we can to promote the local businesses. Uh, I can't remember the name of the company, but that um, you probably know them. That that woman who who grows kind of heritage varieties of potatoes that was up until that oh, point. McKenny. Supplying yeah, yeah. high-end restaurants, right? And of course, all of a sudden yeah. she had this season's crop and didn't know what to do and just started selling it online. And we bought the stuff and some of it was just really really nice right um you know likewise a while back lynn my, my partner uh who's who's always been very very interested in food and of course as a ecologist worked in a national park in killarney uh, as an educational officer but some time ago she started using green earth organics to get our veg boxes right um maybe three or four years ago i can't remember now and wonderful things like you buy a seasonal box so you, you, you don't go to the supermarket and choose. They kind of decide. And all of a sudden we're getting beets uh, and we're getting turnips and we're getting, and you think, God, how, how do you cook those? And all of a sudden you're kind of, you're, you're being encouraged to, to, to expand and do stuff. Um, so I think all of that stuff is really good. My, my one worry is, is that um, some of that stuff at the start of the lockdown was really, really good value. And I don't mean good value for me because I can I can afford to pay uh, uh, more than the average person. But I did notice as as that stuff became more successful and popular, the prices started to go up. So again, I suppose I know I keep laboring the point, but uh, uh, we, we, we have to find a way to make that stuff as accessible as possible. And that means there's a space for the high end stuff, right? There's a space for the Michelin star restaurants and for us all to go there and, and have a, a big family celebration. But, but I always remind people, some of the best meals I've had in Spain are in tiny little cafes in, in mountain towns of no more than a thousand people in the middle of Andalusia, right? Like I, I always remember the first time I had uh, pork cheeks, one of my favourite cuts of pork, was in this tiny little place called Montoro, right? Like it was almost like a wild western town, there were so few people in it. And yet there was this little cafe, it was absolutely buzzing. We decided to stop there. Guy comes out, he said, what do you want? I said, what's the most popular thing locally? And he brings out this lovely fried white bait uh, and this really beautiful slow cooked uh, uh, pork cheek, lovely cumin and, and cardamom and so very kind of Arabic Andalusian flavors. Cheap as chips. Like in fact, it was so cheap that we decided to give a tip and the tip was like, you know, for me it was a tip you'd give something in a re regular restaurant here but they came chasing down the street after us trying to give us our money back thinking i'd made a mistake uh, by leaving the change so it's it's about making sure that at whatever level you're eating whether it's you're stopping at a roadside cafe whether you're on a, a weekend with your family and you're stopping in a mid-price restaurant that the stuff is really good quality because uh, i do find 
you know, and maybe it's just some of the parts of the country we travel to, you stop somewhere for a bite to eat and the chips are microwave chips. Right? And you're yeah, thinking, yeah. like, come on, right? It's not a big deal for a small local pub to do this. Or the fish, for example, <clears throat> you know, it's 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 battered in a factory rather than the batter made fresh from... And small, simple things like that, I think, would make a big difference as well. No, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think I have always said, like, that, I mean, in spite of, I suppose, our... Uh, my association with Anir and that we have two other restaurants and like I, I really think that uh, good food good food can exist at every level and mm-hmm. I'm always saying like a, a good coffee or a good breakfast or like whatever it is and whether that's a sausage or a lobster on the side of the road or it's a, a croissant I mean I, I think it comes down to um, uh, like the passion of the person but also of all, also the 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 fact that it, it's cooked with a little bit of love and I I do think that we we have the potential to to do this all over Ireland, no matter where you are, and there are plenty of people uh, uh, doing it. And I do think that, like, there's a similarity between uh, post crash and post COVID in the sense that I can see we opened Cava just at the at the in 2008, so just before it all came down, and uh, and Cava became very popular, I suppose, because it was tapas and small plates, and you could eat as much as you wanted. You could come in for a glass of wine and a tapa, or you could you could you could uh, blow a budget if you wanted. And I can actually see that COVID will actually, uh, I suppose, further perpetuate that. Uh, I hope good casual restaurant where, like you said, like Claw, which is a great example of of, um, of shellfish and uh, and seafood, or, or plenty of other places, um, that uh, I think that c- that can do that because I think people's habits have changed, and also we we have been eighteen months with almost no no international tourism. Of course, we've had a small bit, but unfortunately, and it's it's just a self evident truth that uh, most of our business in an area is is american and uh, tourists european tourists and uh, and ironically uh, cava is um is full of uh, full of it has tourists but it's also full of irish people and i don't know if it's that's just because our psyche we always want what we what we don't what we can't have so cava is full of irish people and our contemporary irish restaurant is full of american people uh, but uh, i i hope that yeah it it, it 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 also goes back to that thing though about people's perception of food like i remember um, Arginiano is one of the Basque Country's most famous chefs, right? So he's a TV celebrity, he's a cookbook, and he's a beautiful restaurant and hotel in Serauts, just outside uh, Donostia, San Sebastian. And um, it's not a Michelin star restaurant, but the food is really, really good quality, right? And I always remember going there for the first time, right? And feeling like this doesn't feel like a super posh place, right? Like everything was right, everything was good quality, right? And the food is exceptional, like really, really great. But a simple thing, like we were having a conversation about what to have. And, you know, I was kind of saying, well, you know, I'd really like the cocochas. And somebody else was saying, you know, I'd really like the, the stuffed piquillo peppers. And the waiter just said, well, why don't you have both? And I'll serve them split 50-50, right? So no pretension. No, well, you can't do that here. So we ordered the two dishes. But when they came out, mine was half cococh and half stuffed piquillo pepper, Right. And when I looked around, all of a sudden I realised this restaurant wasn't filled with rich people. Yeah, sure, there were some very wealthy people there. But this was a place where, for example, you know, when it was somebody's 50th birthday, 
or when somebody had just got a job or they whatever some some important thing this is where the family went right yes. and again if you looked at the prices sure you could have the really really expensive stuff but they they priced their menu in a way that made it kind of open so okay you'd have other restaurants which aren't like that which are super super kind of posh but even the places that sold very very special food we're also always trying to cater for a, a wide range of people. And I think there's a perception here when somebody says a Michelin star restaurant, people all of a sudden start kind of getting nervous and thinking, you know, well, you know, is that for somebody like me? Um, and, you know, I, 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 I uh, think Locks in, in, in Dublin has it right, because when you go in there, the staff wear T-shirts and jeans. Now, they're, they're uniformed in T-shirts and jeans, right? But the idea is it for it to be relaxed. And you can go in and you can have, okay, it's not cheap, but you can have a really lovely lunch for friends on a special occasion. And and it's not, you know, so far beyond what a group of lads would spend if they went for a, a night out on the, on the town for a lock of pints and an abracababra afterwards. So I think it's just about trying to say to people, see, see that high-end stuff. It's open to everybody. How do we how do we encourage people to get into it? Uh, and and it's also probably people still don't know what Irish cuisine is. I mean, I, again, I know I said it at the start, but but like you know, the, the idea that we have a culinary tradition, right, um, and that it is really good, and that people can cook it, and you know, like one of the recipes of yours I really like is that cockles and cider and and breadcrumbs. So I'm a big cockle fan, right? I eat cockles to beat the band. But like three really simple ingredients, right? Three things that are not expensive. Cockles are one of the cheapest shellfish you'll buy here in Dublin. Breadcrumbs cost you nothing. Um, and a can of cider, you know, so, and yet you have this exquisite dish, right? And it's really simple to cook. You know, you cook your cockles, you throw the stuff all on a plate and you stick it under the grill. It's not, um, so I do think the more we can promote that stuff and make people realize, like you've, you've another wonderful recipe I cook a lot. It's those lovely lamb, um pies with the, the hole in the middle. So oh, yeah. Has this yeah, the dingle pies. Yeah. Yeah, dingle pies. And it has a wonderful look to it, right? Yeah. But absolutely gorgeous and little cooking techniques which I'd never come across. So the way you make the roux, you know, by frying the onions with the butter and then throwing the flour in and then putting the liquid. You know, I'd always done the kind of Spanish way, which is much more elaborate. Whereas they're really simple to cook. Like that dingle pie, if you don't make the pastry yourself, that's fast yes. food. Right. Um, yeah. No. No. And I. I actually of, of all the things, uh, we did plenty of online cooking classes uh, through COVID. And I, I must have mostly recipes based on the book. We must have made those dingle pies again and again, and and they were everyone's uh, favorite. And it is like there's a not there's not even not only a beauty of the pie. It's a wonderful story as well. And I think there's a wonderful history in terms of the pie and dingle and the fact that it came over from probably possibly Lancaster uh, Lancaster and like diff different different um, uh, different stories and sometimes I think that we deny that um, um, to, uh, um, to 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 ourselves and mm. I, I I do think that it's uh, I suppose as you said that 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 perception of of what type of people can go to a restaurant because I'm always I've been banging on about I don't care if you come in in a swimsuit into an ear like it's like if you love food and I, I think that that's it's it's a very ingrained um, idea and it, it, I suppose it comes out of French uh, fine dining that mm. one has to wear one's best clothes and that and I really believe that 
um, like uh, the food is is I suppose for everyone who wants to have it, and uh, and whether it's a special occasion or or, or that, and, and it was one of the reasons why we have a we let children into the restaurant because I was like, why would you deny? The fact yeah. that a child and the education of that child, and so yeah, it's it's we're still we're still not there. It's mostly tourists that bring their kids in. The Spanish right. are really good at bringing their kids into restaurants. Like I always remember, um, the the the, the, the father of, of of the former boss partner of mine that I mentioned earlier. So for for big events like Easter or, or Christmas, the, the dinner would be held in their house, um, and there would be probably about thirty people there. Right. And these were regular working people, professional jobs, working class, trades jobs, etc. A bunch of them would have been political refugees from Franco Spain that had settled in the French part of the Basque country. Some of their family would come up, etc. Everybody would bring stuff like the brothers who who were uh, lamb and sheep farmers. They would bring a recently slaughtered lamb and people bring everything else. Okay, And everything was makeshift. So I'd come from a culture at home where when you were having a fancy dinner in inverted commas there had to be a big centerpiece and there had to be big candles and you had to get out the fancy cutlery and mm. it's almost like the the, the 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 visual presentation of it was more important than the, the food well up there it was the very opposite right and it's it's a tradition i've kept when i do big dinners here you get one plate right everything doesn't matter if you're having five ten fifteen twenty courses you get one plate and at the end when you get to the dessert what do you do you flip the plate over and you eat the sweet from the top of the plate. And that's the way they did it in in, in the uh, yeah. Oliden house, because if you have 30 people, they didn't have enough crockery for everybody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but everything was, the father used to do his own confit duck. So he would go to a guy who he knew who reared the, 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 the poultry. You know, he'd buy them, he'd take them home, he'd uh, 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 feather them and he'd you know, store them away and whatever. You know, he'd go foraging in the mountains for ungos and bring those back. And everything was was care. Why? Because this is what he cooked for the people that he loved, for the people that were important to him. Uh, and those meals, they would go on for five, six, seven, eight hours, right? They went on for much longer than the, the food was consumed. And then the young people, the kids would go off and play and the young people would go to the bar and the older people would sit around and continue drinking whatever uh, spirit they were drinking. And if I was to be asked, what is my favourite way to spend time, other than listening to music and reading with a glass of wine in my study here, it's doing that. It's it's getting up early in the day. It's preparing all of those things. It's people arriving. And then, you know, not a rush meal where it's three courses and you're getting into it. Mm. But, you know, you're almost like grazing. You're getting lots of small yes. courses and you're trying things. And, um, and at no point do you feel stuffed, but you're never you know, kind of left feeling hungry. And then all of a sudden you realize six hours in, you're like a beached whale and, you know, you're going to suffer for it the next day, but you've just had this wonderful experience. Um, and and you can do that, right? Like I, I can cook a, a 10 course meal for a group of six or eight friends for 150 quid, right? Not including the alcohol. If you think about, you know, particularly if you use certain kinds of ingredients that, that are really good quality, but aren't expensive now. 150 quid is a lot of money for a lot of people, right? So I don't want to belittle that. But at the same time, you know, two people go out to a mid-price restaurant in Dublin. You're not getting away for less than 100 quid. So so again, it's about making people realise there are other ways of doing these things that could be really wonderful without all the stress of Christmas Day. Um, so I think this is something we should do regularly rather than just one day a year when you're 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 kind of culturally conditioned to do it. No, absolutely. And I I mean, whenever I cook at home, it's always sharing plates. And it's whether it's a, I mean, because usually it's something that I want to do that is 
not as elaborate. So it's a, a leg of lamb or a roast chicken or and all the little bits around it. And everyone just shares. I, there's no plating because I'm plating all week. And I think that people get preoccupied with that when they watch cooking programs and they go, oh, I'm going to do a, a three course meal. And like there there are ways to do it that are very simple. And, and I have a very simple kitchen at home. I have a, like a four ring and an oven and uh, and that's it. And so it's not I'm always looking at what is the easiest way to um, to cook for a number of people. And like, when, 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 again, I suppose because I, I, I cook from cookbooks all the time, right? I very rarely cook from memory, even though I remember the recipes. Um, and and again, I suppose Basque, Spanish, Portuguese f- food would be the things I cook the most. But I'm a big River Cottage fan, right? Because yes. what, what he does in those books, and, and I remember the first time I got a copy of Fish, right? And it's my Bible, is that in fact, only a third of the book is recipes. A, a third of it is knowing about fish. And a third is knowing what to do with the dead thing. Do you know what I mean? How to cut it and and all the rest of it. So those kind of knife skills. But his food is really, really simple. Exactly as you say, just putting big dishes of food at the centre of the table and everybody pick at them. But it's really, really good quality. And, and what I love about his books is that if you follow the recipe, it looks and tastes exactly like what he says in the book, right? There's no, you know, I've, I've seen some cookbooks where you buy them. They're very complicated and fernickety and things never turn out the way they sound like they're going to turn out. Where his stuff is just good quality, kind of traditional English cooking in the main. You know, the Harry Bikers, for example, do some really wonderful stuff as well in terms of that tour around England they did where they were looking at all the local produce and and local ingredients and local recipes and celebrating the stuff that your granny cooks, you know. Um, Because for me, again, I go back to that that, uh, uh, big popular dinner we had in the Portuguese factory. We had one of those beautiful uh, 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 Portuguese fish stews, five or six different kind of fish, and you know, uh, almost like al dente boiled potatoes and beautiful saffron broth. But like it just came out in these enormous vats and was plonked down, um, and people just scooped out and ate and ate, and they had freshly baked bread and you know local cheap but good quality wine, and you could eat like that all day. Um, and for me, some of that stuff is 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 some of the most enjoyable stuff, you know. I almost don't need knives and forks. Your hands will do if it's uh, uh, the right kind of food. Yeah, no, and it's interesting you mentioned you and like you is it would have been a, a massive influence on on me uh, in my early twenties himself. And I think Nigel Slater just I loved the way in which they cooked and wrote about food. And uh, I remember, I, remember I met you uh, a couple of years ago, and I, I'm being all shy <laughs> and I'd tell him he was one of my food heroes. And uh, but it is, yeah, I, I think I, I it, it, that kind of cooking particularly appeals to me, and particularly when you when you t- when you think about food sovereignty and I suppose social gastronomy for me that that's the kind of idea that I that I, I have it is not elaborate preparations and and sometimes when I when I give out about food in petrol stations or restaurants around Ireland often people think about well they, not everyone can have a mission on star and I was like I'm not it's all I'm looking for is a really nice sandwich a really really nice bowl of soup a salad or, or a di- or a pie. I mean, that, that, that's uh, and I think that that potential is um, is uh, is within is 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 it within everyone. And um, like we could talk all day. I think and there's plenty more questions. And I always try and keep it to the hour because um, it seems to work for people. But like it, it's been great talking to you, Ona. And uh, I think that like for me, it the uh, 
the I suppose that the potential to to learn there's always the great potential to learn from Spain for me in terms of food because as an island we have we we can do we can do so much so I, I hope that um the future of of Irish food is uh, is bright and if we can do half of what they do in the in the Basque country or even in in Spain I think we'll uh, we'll be all right. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, and we're we've planned a, a little visit your way, uh, so you might see us in early September. But we'll tell you more about that another time. Oh, listen, thank you so much. All right, good talking to you.